The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Find the Targets, Treat with Precision, Modern Principles and New Advances in Biomarker-Driven Lung Cancer Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UTP 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, and welcome to today's CME done in partnership with Longevity and Peerview on targeted therapy in lung cancer. I'm Dr. Amy Moore, Longevity's Vice President of Global Engagement and Patient Partnerships. At Longevity, we have two main goals. The first is to improve outcomes for people diagnosed with lung cancer, and the second is to improve how people live with lung cancer. We know that optimal care for lung cancer is driven by precision medicine. And at Longevity, we define precision medicine as biomarker-driven care from pre-diagnosis through diagnosis, treatment, and potential progression. And we have programs and services along this entire spectrum of care. First, we have an extensive offering of survivorship and support services. These include our lung cancer helpline shown at the upper left, which is staffed Monday through Thursday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern and Fridays from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern at the numbers shown there. We also provide peer-to-peer support in the form of our lifeline support partners and clinical trial ambassadors. Additionally, we provide a clinical trial finder so patients can find trials that may be relevant to their care. We also offer an extensive suite of patient education services. This includes our comprehensive Lung Cancer 101 website, videos, booklets on various topics, and questions that you can ask your doctor in the form of tear sheets that patients can take with them to their medical appointments. You can find all of our educational resources at the link shown here. This includes our comprehensive booklets shown on the left, which includes booklets on various stages and subtypes of lung cancer, as well as booklets on testing and different treatments, including biomarker testing, clinical trials, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation therapy, and targeted therapy, both in English and Spanish. We also provide shorter, more digestible forms of this same information in the form of brochures and flyers as shown on the right. So again, go to this website and you can access all of these materials. And now I'm going to hand it off to my colleague, Nikki Martin, who serves as Longevity's Director of Precision Medicine Initiatives to talk more in depth about some of our targeted therapy offerings. Nikki? Thank you, Amy. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Senior Director of Precision Medicine Initiatives at Longevity Foundation. Um, uh, We have uh, something for everyone when it comes to biomarker testing patient education material. And we wanted to really hit on that uh, for today's CME since that was such a big focus. Uh, We think it's very important that patients understand more about this uh, component of their care. And uh, so we have the comprehensive booklets around uh, biomarker testing that are written at an 11th or 12th grade level. And then also health literate materials on biomarker testing that are are available in English and also available in Spanish. Um, in addition to these materials, uh, we recently launched a campaign called No One Missed. And this is a public awareness campaign aimed at Black and African American and Hispanic Latino communities to increase awareness 
amongst those uh, communities to ask their provider for biomarker testing. And if it's not available through one provider to seek a second opinion. In the coming months, we will start localized awareness activities in Atlanta, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Miami. And finally, uh, the Longevity Lung Cancer Patient Gateways are custom-made gateways for people with specific types of lung cancer to find specialized patient resources, allow patients to easily access biomarker-specific information, and connect to community and experts. The KRAS, ALP, EGFR, and NSCLC gateways are currently online and available for your patients to access. And later this year, we will launch gateways for rare mutations such as MET, RET, and ROS1, in addition to a gateway for small cell lung cancer. We encourage you to introduce your patients to these resources for tailored uh, information unique to their type of lung cancer. And finally, we thank you so much for participating in today's CME program on biomarker testing and targeted therapies. Longevity is here to support you, to support your patients. So please tap into our organizational resources. Thank you. Welcome to this evening's Peerview CME event. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see all of you in person. A lot of familiar faces and certainly acknowledging all of those watching virtually joining uh, us through the internet. Uh, this title of this program is Find the Targets, Treat with Precision, Modern Principles, and New Advances in Biomarker-Driven Lung Cancer Care. And certainly, the field has been revolutionized during all of our careers. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, and I am joined by a very esteemed panel. For those that don't know, my name is Stephen Liu from Georgetown University, and I'm joined up on stage by three of the uh, top lung cancer minds in the world. Uh, to my immediate left is Dr. Marina Chiara Garasino from right here at the University of Chicago. Uh, next is Dr. Ross Kamage from the University of Colorado. And at the far end, Dr. Sanjay Pompat uh, from Royal Marsden in London. And I think it's no exaggeration when I say these three have you know, not only contributed to, to many of the standards of care that we now take for granted today, but it really shaped the field of precision oncology in lung cancer and beyond. I'm looking forward to today. And today's uh, activity is not necessarily just a lecture or a regurgitation of the data that we've all seen. What I really want to do while I have the three of you up here is try to get into your head and understand how you approach precision oncology, how you make the decisions, and how the, you exercise the judgment um, that you do so well. So here's our agenda today. Uh, we're going to go over some of the gaps in biomarker testing, talk about how we act on those. And as I mentioned, we're going to go through... Uh, how we approach targeted oncology, really get into the mind of these experts up here. How do we select our initial therapy? How do we approach CNS and resistance? And how we move these principles up into the earlier stages of lung cancer? I'd like to acknowledge longevity as our partner. We know that patient education and engagement in care decisions is more important uh, than ever. Clearly, all of these choices are shared decision-making models. There are more options. We want to really empower our patients to help make the best decisions for them with us, Longevity is partnering with us in this program to bring in the patient perspective and to highlight the importance of having open conversations with the patients about the diagnosis, biomarker testing, treatment options, allowing patients to advocate for themselves. Please do access the Supplemental Longevity Resource Compendium that's available with this program. You'll be able to download some aids that will make, I think, your practice easier, your patient's uh, uh, participation a lot easier. 
a lot of us have seen a graph like this before. And you know, in our lifetime, we've seen the role of the medical oncologist really evolve, where not only are we responsible for making treatment decisions, but really the interpretation and the ordering of biomarker testing. The responsibility does not fall now on pathologists. It really does fall on medical oncologists. And so we're responsible for understanding uh, what all these slices mean. We've moved well past the difference between just non-small cell and small cell, between just histological types of cancer like squamous and non-squamous, and we now recognize that each of these slices represents a different biology. Each of these genomic alterations represents really a different cancer, and we finally have the ability to treat these cancers appropriately and individually. Shown on the right is a long list of approved drugs with matched targets. That list continues to grow. There will be more by the end of the year, and it is hard to keep up, which is where we're going to ask some of our experts what they think. And while it's clear that biomarker testing drives the initial proper management of patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, we are not doing as great a job in testing. Shown here on the left is data from the My Lung Consortium. These are relatively recent U.S. data. And if we look at a relatively simple panel of EGFR, ALK, ROS1, BRAF, pdl one targets that we know about, targets where we have approved drugs and pretty straightforward tests. How often are we checking for all five of those? Less than half of the time. If we look at just EGFR, where we have multiple easily approved tests to look for EGFR, where we have many very effective drugs, where we need that information to make the right decision, we only test for EGFR in 76% of non-squamous lung cancer. And that's here in the U.S. So one out of four patients is not getting biomarker testing. Marina, uh, let me go to you. Since you've been here at the University of Chicago, is this what you're seeing in the U.S.? And how does this compare to, to your experience in Italy? Yeah, I think that we are not testing enough. The situation is very similar here in Chicago and also in, uh, in Italy. And uh, I think that the data presented last year in ASCO, they reflect very well the situation. So in about 50% of patients, we do just... Uh, for tests and only in less than 40% of patients we are doing NGS prior to the first-line therapy. So I think that there is a lot of space to improve. Yeah, <laughs> certainly the case. We could do much better. And when we look a little closer at our testing rates and really some of the flaws in our testing, we can see that biologically there's not much difference between different races. Shown here are data between black and white patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. And what we see is the rate of EGFR mutation and ALK fusion is the same in black patients and white patients, but our ability, our, our sort of performance in terms of testing clearly is not. Uh, what we saw in these data were black patients were less likely to get tested, were less likely to get tested early, and were less likely to get full testing with NGS, despite really the opportunity to benefit from those same drugs. Ross, is, is this something you're seeing in, in Colorado? What can we do about this? So one of the, the surveys that I found most interesting was if you ask people, do you do you know, full biomarker testing? Most people responded, yes. And then the second question was, do you think the other people in your practice do it? And they go, no. And so it's always the other guy's fault. And I, I think we have to take ownership of this sort of thing. So, I mean, we've been testing everybody for everything, but I think this re reflects some implicit bias. It's, it can't just be access to medical care, and we have to do better. Yeah, absolutely agree. So a lot of room for improvement, and it really starts with all of us uh, individually. We are now going to go to uh, our first principle of biomarker testing, interpretation of results. And for that, we have a case that we can walk through together. I think it's a pretty typical case. A 50-year-old female non-smoker who comes to see you today for a second opinion. She's noticed a persistent non-productive cough. She gets tested for COVID. That's negative. 
Given an inhaler, antihistamines didn't get better. This should sound very familiar to us. Finally did an x-ray that showed a lung nodule. CT also shows liver metastases. We biopsy the liver and that shows metastatic adenocarcinoma, TTF1 positive, PDL1 50%, no driver alterations on standard reflex testing, minimal symptoms. As we expect, this patient is very anxious, is eager to start treatment immediately. They're offered immunotherapy from their primary oncologist, but you know what? Before they start, they come to see you for an opinion. Here are some of the details through the records. We have a PDL1 expression of 50% with a DACO 22C3 clone. We have wild type EGFR, BRAF, and KRAS by PCR, wild type ALK and ROS1 by FISH. This patient has relatively minimal symptoms, but eager to start therapy. And so I'll ask you to join with us. What are we going to do next? Are we going to agree with our colleague and say immunotherapy is appropriate? We have high PDL1. We didn't see anything on reflex testing. We can stop now. We need to start immunotherapy. Do we start immunotherapy? Let's send a liquid biopsy, uh, maybe full NGS, and then switch later if we need to. Do we tell the patient uh, it is important to wait for those results? Do we get a liquid biopsy? If that's negative, start immunotherapy? Or do we say we really need full results? We are going to order a liquid biopsy and comprehensive tissue-based next-gen sequencing. And if it shows a target, we start therapy. If we don't see anything liquid, we wait for tissue or I'm not sure. It's okay to answer that as well. And so I'll ask you to key in an answer now, uh, and then we'll ask our panel their thoughts. But this is a situation I think we see a lot. Generally, patients, especially non-smokers, go through a long course from symptom to diagnosis. And Sanjay, do you feel like patients are often very eager to start therapy? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's a really late diagnosis for most patients who never smoke. They're diagnosed often with asthma or something like that for a while. And so telling a patient, actually, we don't need to rush into anything, goes completely against what they, they want to know. But it's really important that we have these discussions and actually starting off with immunotherapy without really understanding the biomarker profile may not really be the best thing to patients. Absolutely agree with that. And one of the things we can do to try to decrease the time while we're waiting is reflex testing. And you know, reflex testing has pros and cons. Sanjay, can you walk us through what we mean by reflex testing? Yes, reflex testing has sort of come about because, you know, originally when we started uh, molecular testing, it was the oncologist that was making the decision to test or not. And then testing has got more difficult, and so therefore the pathologist has started taking some ownership on this testing pathway. And the reflex testing is when the pathologist, at the same time as making a diagnosis of lung cancer, will also order the molecular testing that has some great benefits because it can really truncate the time till we get a result because the pathologist has already cracked on with that. And not only that, but the patient actually knows that the patient, uh, the pathologist already knows that the patient may have two or three other samples in the lab and may choose not to use the sample that he's dealing with, but another one from a core biopsy, for example. So they know the best specimen to use. They can just crack on with it. However, the problem with this is that you know, it may be not appropriate for that patient. The patient may have a stage 1A lung cancer, which in which, you know, molecular testing at that time point may not be appropriate for that uh, patient. And, you know, the oncologist may have a better understanding of what tests the patients need. A good example is a patient that's progressing, for example, on a TKI, when you're really interested, for example, in met fish, not necessarily in a standard NGS panel where you can't tell so I think there are pros and cons. Personally, I favor the reflex testing. Right. Um, we know that early testing is important. This is no longer this ivory tower exercise where we're learning about it. Really, it impacts 
how we treat patients from day one, we need that to optimize care. It tells us about the biology. Uh, we've seen some data, Ross, on you know certain tests, uh, uh, certain biomarkers predicting involvement of different metastatic spread or venous events. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, we've known for over 10 years that, for example, ALK has a high spread of pericardial and pleural disease. And then most recently, we showed that the rate of peridiagnostic clots um, sort of within 90 days of diagnosis is influenced by the oncogene. So 40% of ROS1 patients will actually present with a clot. So it, it tells us about the biology, tells us about prognosis. Most importantly, it guides initial therapy up front. It lets us choose targeted therapy. It lets us deselect immunotherapy. And immunotherapy is certainly an appealing treatment, is a transformative treatment. We see direct-to-consumer advertising. I see a lot of billboards on Michigan Avenue about different immunotherapy drugs. I don't know if those are always there. Uh, but we know immunotherapy has not been very effective in driver-positive lung cancer. Shown here uh, is really the immunotarget study from Julian Mazieris uh, in France. And we see that for most drivers, some exceptions like KRAS, but for EGFR, ALK-MET, immunotherapy largely disappointing in the salvage setting. But not only is immunotherapy less effective, there are also some safety concerns with using immunotherapy in a driver-positive lung cancer. There's really the potential to do harm for patients. Maria, can you sort of expand on, on what I mean by that? Yeah, this was a very clear trial. The patients were EGFR mutated, PDL1 more than 1%. The majority of them, there were PDL1 more than 50. So this was the typical case that we see in our daily practice, PDL1 more than 50 and EGFR mutated. And in this trial, there was pembrolizumab because they were PDL1 high, and then patients were treated with EGFR TKI uh, uh, at progression. And uh, the response rate for immunotherapy in these patients was about 0%. So we are treating patients without any uh, efficacy. And uh, if we look at the safety, the safety was uh, terrible because we had in 14.3% of patients pneumonitis. And uh, the same concept was not just for EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but we saw the liver toxicity for the ALK inhibitors after the immunotherapy. And again, uh, recently published also the hypersensitivity reaction to cell percutinib in rat positive patients. And as you can see, it is 11.2% compared to just 2.8% in no prior immune checkpoint therapy. So the response rate of the immunotherapy is very low, if not zero. And you can risk a lot of toxicity. And so then you have to stop the, the drug during the treatment. Now, to me, this is a very new principle in oncology because generally what we're used to in practice and trials we give chemotherapy, it's not working, we stop, and we wait a little while, and we have a fresh slate, we can start over. But that's not true with immunotherapy. When we give immunotherapy first, it changes the efficacy potentially and the safety, definitely, of everything we give after. And so if we give a TKI first, generally pretty safe. But if we give a TKI after immunotherapy, it's different. Ross, do we know why this happens? We don't. Um, the, the best way to remember it is actually an expression from Jack West, which is poisoning the well. So you've got the patient who's a never smoker you think might have a drive of oncogene. And if you give immunotherapy with that first cycle, you have set yourself up for failure if you then have to get them on a TKI later. One of the things that seems to come out is it seems to exaggerate the pre-existing side effects of the TKI. So 
if EGFR inhibitors cause pneumonitis, that becomes exaggerated with immunotherapy. If they happen to be causing transaminitis, that gets exaggerated with immunotherapy. We don't fully understand why. Clearly happens, and it seems to be across drivers, not something we want to explore, um, that really is why it, it, the, the order, the sequence matters. And if there are some patients that need treatment today, and we don't have results, um, in those settings, I think we all agree that we start with chemotherapy, because we can walk back from chemotherapy, but not necessarily immunotherapy. So biomarker testing is essential, not just to, to identify the potential for targeted therapy, really to avoid immunotherapy, which is ineffective, and which makes the proper therapy much more dangerous. There are different ways to do biomarker testing, and I want to talk a little bit about liquid biopsy. Sanjay, uh, what do I mean by liquid biopsy? Yeah, so liquid biopsy is a sort of colloquial term that we've uh, used to talk about circulating tumor DNA testing. And circulating tumor DNA testing is a part of the cell-free DNA that we can evaluate from the plasma from uh, a patient. And different tumors shed their DNA into the plasma at different rates. High-grade tumors more likely to shed into the plasma. Patients with bone mets, perhaps liver mets, more likely to shed into the plasma. Patients with brain mets, less likely to shed into the plasma. And you can actually sequence across these small fragments of DNA from the plasma and infer whether the DNA fragments you identify are from the tumor or not. We have to remember there are three genomes in the plasma that we're testing. The tumor genome, the human genome, the germline, but also the leukocyte genome, the chip genome. And that then um, goes on to give us some benefits and some disadvantages. Because often, you know, we're starting off with tumor tissue uh, genotyping, which has been our gold standard for many years. We know that it's relatively slow, particularly if we're doing large panel NGS. It's quicker if we do PCR, but then we're missing a few variants. We know that the sensitivity is very good, and we know that if we find a variant, we can believe that it really is the actionable variant. We know that the specificity is very good, and it's unlikely that you're going to report something as somatic when, in fact, it's germline, and the cost depends on the provider. With plasma CT DNA testing, things are slightly different. It is much more convenient. You can schedule the patient to come up for a blood draw at any convenient time point, not necessarily at the point at which the biopsy takes place. It's much quicker than waiting to order the tissue to come out of the pathology archive for the blob to be cut, to be sent to the third party, to then be analyzed, to the report, then to find its way back to the person that uh, ordered it in the first place, who's not the person that's actioning on the results. It usually comes back to the person that uh, has ordered it in the first place. Sensitivity, however, is problematic, and it's much lower sensitivity in general than we find with uh, uh, tumor tissue testing, specifically for uh, variants like amplification events and also fusion events, which are more problematic to detect with plasma uh, genotyping than tumor genotyping. And specificity, whilst it's really very good for driving mutations, you do sometimes find these false positives called chip variants which are uh, variants from the white cells, which you just need to be a bit careful in interpreting, and the cost depends on the provider. You know, I think both are complementary. You've just got to understand the pros and cons of each particular approach. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, they can be helpful in finding things like fusions. We know fusions are critical to find. Uh, noted here, a different kettle of fish, little word of play. I would encourage any trainees that have the ability to go to a pathologist when they're doing fish, it is an eye-opening experience in how labor-intensive it is to see a pathologist just sit there and count cells. 
And it is a little scary to me at how inaccurate fish can be and how user-dependent it is. Now we use NGS largely to find many of these fusions, but how you test for fusions matters. And so we need to understand how that matters. We need to understand the limitations and the details of the tests that we're ordering. So not enough just to order a test. We need to know what test to order. Ross, which of these fusions are challenging? And can you tell us a little bit about DNA versus RNA? Okay, so when you're using next-generation sequencing, what we're talking about is the starting material. So it's not DNA versus RNA, it's DNA plus or minus RNA. When you sequence through DNA, you've got the introns in there, and so it gets harder for certain gene rearrangements, which may have a huge gap between those two things which are brought together in the final transcript. Uh, they can also have multiple repetitive sequences. They can have areas where primers don't bind very well. And so by using RNA, you kind of cut out literally the middleman. You say, okay, you've already processed this RNA. Now these two epidopes are next to each other. You only need primers really on one of the epidopes and you can sequence through. So your pickup rate goes up. And the reason it matters is if you're just using a DNA-based next-generation sequencing panel, you will find a fusion or a medexon 14 some of the time. And you'll go, oh, I found one last week. What you won't know is the 10 that you missed. And so the pickup rate when you use an RNA-based sequencing panel in addition to a DNA-based sequencing panel is sometimes double that for specific oncogenes. Do you ever see this, Ross, where someone will come see you for a second opinion? I'm sure you get many. They've had DNA-based next-gen sequencing, and you'll find something on RNA afterwards? Yes. I mean, it, it, it's, it's one of the things that makes you feel like your job is worthwhile. So the patient comes in, they're told they're marker negative. And the first question you're going to ask there is, well, what didn't they test you for? Or how did they not test you appropriately? And so this study that you're showing here from MSK took patients who were described as driver negative by a DNA-based panel. They had an RNA-based panel added in afterwards. And 15% of them, they found a potentially actionable abnormality, mostly abnormal gene fusions. Ross, I take it from your enthusiasm here that you're employing RNA-based NGS in addition to DNA? Yeah, so we, uh, we, we have uh, a commercial panel. Um, it's made by Archer, and then we're doing both a DNA and an RNA-based extraction. I'm, I'm curious for our colleagues here in the UK, is RNA sequencing available? Yeah, it is actually. In fact, the government have got a uh, centrally funded seven genomic hubs within England, and there's a panel of seven actionable genes, and the recommended testing is a combination of DNA and RNA. It's not that well implemented, but that's what's going to be going on. And actually, in many of the labs that do it, that's working very well. And Marina, in Italy and here at the University of Chicago? Yeah, here at the University of Chicago, we have the RNA panel. And in Italy, it's less frequent. Unfortunately, it's only available in the big cancer centers. So I believe that, at least in my previous country, we need to refer patients to, to big centers, in particular if they are never smokers. And I think it's, it's really the responsibility now of, of us, of oncologists, to know the panel we order, is it DNA and RNA? We need to know that those types of specifications, that's really different from, I think, the time when we were training. Um, it really is a, a new responsibility for medical oncologists. So if we go back to our case, as a reminder, this was a non-smoker female with very high pdl one expression, no drivers on PCR and FISH, uh, eager to start therapy. Her oncologist recommended immunotherapy. What would you do here, Sanjay, um, when you see this situation, high PD-L1, negative PCR, negative FISH? What's your practice? You know, we, 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 we clearly need to genotype this patient more extensively to find the driver. Yeah, we have a very high suspicion that there's something that's going to influence our treatment and the risk of sort of choosing the wrong therapy. And there really is a wrong therapy uh, in this setting. 
And so if we go back to, to this question, I'll ask the audience again, PDL one high, we see no drivers by PCR and fish. What are we going to do in this setting? A patient that doesn't have too many symptoms. Do we want to proceed with immunotherapy because PDL one's high? Do we want to wait for a liquid biopsy? Um, or sort of that bottom answer, do we want to just wait, send off liquid? If liquid's negative, wait for the tissue. Only when full liquid and tissue are negative do we proceed with immunotherapy. So we'll let everyone enter here. So one of the red flags is if you have a never smoker and have a PDL one of 100%. So that is telling you that that is not the perfect patient to get. That is the patient who has a driver oncogene, because often PDL one goes up downstream of many driver oncogenes. So it, super high PDL one in a never smoker is actually a big red flag that you should not give immunotherapy, at least in my experience. It means something different. And a lot of people say, I see very high PDL one 100 percent and I see a ROS1 fusion, which is the winner, and consistently the target's the winner. Right, Ross? Yeah, every time. Every time. Uh, it just means something different in that setting. In fact, the median PD-1 expression for ROS1 is, is north of 90%, so it just means something different there. I'll encourage everyone to go to the website listed here, www.legevity.org slash booklets. You can print out these booklets or direct your patients there. These are patient biomarker testing candidates that really help us explain what biomarker testing is, and it can really make things a lot clearer for patients and certainly help us out in the clinics. They are available in Spanish and for health literates as well. Acting on biomarker results, here we're going to talk a little bit about granularity. And I think these are important points because, again, the role of a medical oncologist really is changing. We really are responsible for being a molecular oncologist. And for a large part, we didn't really get that training. And so we need to sort of pick up as we go. We know that testing is needed to optimize care. We know that it guides initial therapy. We know that we need NGS and that there's a difference between DNA or DNA with RNA. But even beyond that, we need to know exactly what alterations we're looking for. And I think a good example is MET. And so, Ross, if I tell you I have a patient and I'm, I want your input and they're MET positive, what does that mean? <laughs> it means you need to go back to school. Um, so <laughs> it's not enough. So MET is, uh, and if you don't know about it, it gets more and more complex every year. So MET can function as a driver oncogene through a MET-X and 14 skip mutation, through MET amplification, which can be defined and categorized in different ways through rare, super rare MET fusions. And if that wasn't crazy enough, you were going to start to learn about MET protein expression because it's a marker for antibody drug conjugate activity. So yeah, MET positive, that's not enough. And Russ, when you say MET amplification, would that be enough? <laughs> uh, you know the answer to that question. So no. So can, amplification is a continuous variable. So, you know, you've got one from your mom, one from your dad, you've got two copies. Well, what if you have three? What if you have 30? Then the other thing is, what if that is, is increased, but everything else on the same chromosome is increased too? So for example, EGFR is on the same chromosome seven. That's high polysomy, multiple copies of chromosome seven. Does that mean the same versus your chromosome is still there, but just that one region where MET is has suddenly been amplified? So the former is called high polysomy. The second is called true amplification. It's not that one is right and one is wrong. They both increase the chance that you will have met as an actionable abnormality, but you know the exact level in each of those scenarios differs. And I am just struck by the granularity that we're expected to be responsible for. And we really do need to, to stay up to date with how these impact you know, the biology and how they impact our treatment decisions we're familiar in oncology with HER2. You see HER2 in breast cancer. It really um, guides therapy. One of the early targets in oncology, HER2 positive breast cancer managed a certain way. Marina, HER2 in lung cancer, in the same thing? Yeah. See, what, what you said is perfect. So we are not in breast cancer. 
and we have three situations, the amplification, the overexpression, and the mutation. The, for the amplification, the results are really controversial, but we have good results for HER2 mutation. So don't consider lung cancer if HER2 is overexpressed like breast cancer because we are in a totally different uh, uh, situation. So the tumor type matters, different alterations in different cancers. It's much more complicated, and we really can't say HER2 positive. We would want to say HER2 mutant, HER2 mutation, um, and which specific mutation is present. Um, and, and we know that there are many different mutations, mostly within exon 20. All these details sort of matter. But even saying mutation might not be enough, right? Santos, if I told you KRAS mutant lung cancer and I want your input, is that enough detail? No, definitely not. I mean, it used to be. Uh, but actually, like everything in the world, we move on. We get greater detail. We understand the biology better. We understand the biology better. We can understand the therapeutic choices that we need to make for our patients better. And in the world of KRAS, we know that KRAS is a driver variant for lung cancer since about 1987. But now with the advent of G12C, specific inhibitors, it's really important to know the specific mutation within KRAS that your patient has. And you can see from this, this slide, there are many different types of uh, KRAS mutations. KRAS G12C is the most common mutation seen in lung cancer, accounting for about 13% of all lung adenocarcinomas. And we have, um, you know, uh, very good KRAS inhibitors, which are now available. I realize that KRAS must have the same timeline as Top Gun movies. So the first version comes out in mid-1980s, and then the second version comes out in the 2020s. <laughs> and, uh, and a dynamic, dynamic <laughs> uh, treatment uh, field we now have as a result. I mean, if I can go on from that, we have the... Uh, <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. We have the uh, uh, data from the Code Break study. I mean, you'll know uh, this. This is the data from Sitarasib, which is a specific G12C inhibitor, which means if you've found a G12D, you don't want to give it. If you found another KRAS mutation, you don't want to give it. If you found G12C, you do want to give it. And this drug is now licensed and approved and reimbursed in many parts of the world. And this is the registration data set from the Codebreak 100 data, uh, trial in which 124 patients with relapsed non-small cell lung cancer metastatic were treated with the uh, drug uh, Cetaracib at 960 milligrams a day. Now, this is a very interesting group of drugs because it's not really the same as a receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor that we're used to dealing with, like ALPs and ROS and EGFRs. KRAS biology is really complicated, but I'm going to make it simple for you. So these drugs trap KRAS in an inactivated state, in an off state, but the biology is complicated, so we get different types of outcomes that we have expected to see compared to our RTK. Uh, signaling. And so what we see here is a response rate of about 37%, you know, which for me, I think is really, really very interesting because actually our taxanes, which we're generally using in this type of setting, have response rates of about 10 to 20% at most. And we look at progression-free survival, we're seeing that around seven months or so. If we look at overall survival, that's really, you know, what, much better than we would typically see because this is generally a poor prognostic oncogene as well. These patients have bad disease in general. So 12.5 uh, months, pretty good uh, in that setting. Now, we do have some safety issues. We do need to bear in mind uh, this drug, you know, can cause problems with diarrhea, GI toxicities with nausea, with transaminitis. And if you've primed your patient with IO beforehand, you may be able to trigger some 
liver tox with that. So you just have to bear in mind that the tox that you get may not be drug-related entirely, may be uh, related to uh, IO as well. And at this meeting yesterday, we heard the data from Marathi where the CRISPR-1 study reported with uh, the covalent G12C inhibitor Adagrasib, which is another off inhibitor trapping a KRAS G12C in the inactivated form. And again, we see very good activity, very similar, I would suggest, to what we've seen with Sotaracib, with um, response rates of around 40%, progression-free survival just over six months or so, and treatment-related adverse events in the same sort of ballpark as we've seen with Sotaracib. Uh, yeah, these data published in the New England Journal yesterday, um, fresh off the press. And you know, what I see a lot, I'm not sure if you do as well, is really a, a lack of understanding of what G12C means. It means that the position 12, you know, amino acid G turns into C. And that C, that cysteine, is where this drug binds. Yeah. And I see a lot of patients uh, come with, with opinions where they'll have a G12D yeah. or G12V. And I'll say, well, 40% response rate with sotoracid for G12C. For G12D, maybe it's 20%, maybe it's 10%, but it will be 0%. And so really, it is, uh, these details matter quite a bit. We're responsible for that. EGFR is another one. We're familiar with EGFR mutations. Now you have to be familiar with what specific mutations you're looking for. We know deletion 19 and LA58R, leucine to arginine 858, LA58R mutations. These are our common sensitized mutations where we have osimertinib, erlotinib, jafitinib, afatinib, dacomitinib. But for atypical mutations, we have different drugs approved. And for exon 20 insertions, we have different uh, ones as well. And so that brings us to our next question here. Um, what is the clinical significance of an in-frame exon 20 insertion detected in tumor cells of a patient with advanced lung adenocarcinoma? So an exon 20 insertion, A, this mutation predicts response to a first-generation TKI, or laudanib, jafitinib. B, predicts response to amivantamab, mobicertinib, poziotinib. Or C, the mutation is not targetable. Chemotherapy is our best option. D, mutation is not clinically relevant. That's a benign polymorphism. Or not sure. I'll ask you to key in your answer here. Uh, let's learn a little bit more about exon 20 insertions. Uh, Marina, can I ask you to, to talk us about this specific class of alteration? Yeah, this is a, a small group of patients, and they have specifically uh, a mutation in the exon 20. And uh, we know them very well because uh, in the past, uh, they were very resistant to the first uh, and uh, uh, the second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So we were used to see insertion in exon 20, and we knew very well in the past that we didn't have to give uh, jefitinib and erlotinib. Um, and as you can see here also, the progression-free survival was very low because the activity was, uh, uh, was, was about zero. And we know also that these patients, they have a worse prognosis compared to the other because also they didn't respond very well to the first and the second generation TKI. Uh, they are an heterogeneous group of patients. Again, you can see that there are a lot of variants. And uh, we have uh, results for new drugs. And you can see on the right that there is also a different uh, IC50 in the sidelines, uh, and uh, there is uh, some activity that personally uh, I think is uh, really low in, uh, for, uh, for afatinib. Uh, what it is really important is that uh, this mutation in 2022 is targetable, and again, like before, we uh, have to diagnose this mutation, 
And we know that if we just use the PCR, we can miss 50% of cases. So um, I think that, again, coming back to the previous uh, um, discussion, we have to do the NGS also to identify or also the Exxon 20 uh, insertion. And the reason is that uh, in 2022, we have uh, drugs for also for uh, this mutation. We saw the results uh, of uh, imivantanab uh, um, last year, and we saw also the results uh, of mobocertinib, and there is also posiotinib, and other drugs are coming. So you have to remember that although it is rare, this is a potentially targetable uh, mutation. Imivantanab is a bispecific antibody targeting both EGFR and MET, and mobocertinib is an oral drug with uh, uh, an EGFR tyrosine kinase uh, activity. And I have found these to be very frustrating, uh, you know, for years before these drugs were approved, because you have a, a female, never smoker, younger, you have that phenotype where you're really suspecting an alteration, you hold off on therapy, you send off NGS, it comes back, you see EGFR, and your heart leaps, and then you see exon 20 insertion and it just falls because you know we're not going to get that benefit from immunotherapy because of the EGFR. But we know that great drugs like osimertinib or Lodin, they're not going to be effective either. And it really left us without any advances, just chemotherapy, the same chemotherapy we've been given for decades. And so we were really depriving patients of that option. We know the target's there, but we had no way to, to sort of target that. And that changed last year with the approval of two drugs. Ross, do you want to walk us through a little bit of these targeted drugs in EGFR exon 20? Yeah. So amavantamab, I think, I think it was a dark horse. I don't think anyone expected it to work here, but it did, and they ran with it. So it's got about a 40% response rate. Um, I don't have the toxicities on this slide or the next slide. Um, I don't know why. Well, it also works. You know, it's a MET EGFR. It also works in MET exon 14 skipping mutations. We saw that data at this year's ASCO. But one of the interesting side effects with amavantamab is something like two-thirds of your patients on day one will have an infusion reaction, and then they will never have one again. So you just have to tell the patient, you know, hi, we're going to start AMI today. It's going to be a bad day. And then you're good. It's one and done. So it's a really nice infusion reaction. It's not like playing Russian roulette the other times. You also get some rash um, and some fatigue, but it's not too bad. Um, MOBO, on the other hand, has a kind of similar, if, if numerically slightly lower response rate in the kind of um, high 20s to sort of low 30s. Um, it has no CNS penetration. AMI, we're not aware, has any CNS penetration. MOBO definitely has no CNS penetration. That's an overt liability. And it has quite a lot of toxicity, a lot of diarrhea, a lot of rash. Posiotinib, I think, is even worse. MOBO certainib, I view as a proof of principle drug. You know, we have a TKI that will work in exon 20 insertion. The whole goal is to find one with a wider therapeutic window that hits EGFR wild type nowhere near as hard as it hits the exon 20, and to get one that has CNS penetration. We've got new drugs coming as well. We heard about some at our oral presentations at ASCO later. This clearly is an area where we, we can address this target, so it is changing. Important to find these exon 18 mutations, another different alteration within that EGFR gene. We know neratinib is an emerging treatment option shown here. Are some early data from the SUMMIT trial showing some promising early efficacy in a relatively small data set for neratinib, but really just highlighting the granularity, the different options we have for different mutations, and all of these details um, really do matter. So let's go to this case. A 62-year-old male, a former light smoker, has a right-sided lung mass on a calcium scan for his heart. Uh, we do staging, no mediastinal involvement, nothing distance. We have a stage 2A lung adenocarcinoma. 
For stage 2A, we're going to offer chemotherapy. So this patient gets four cycles of adjuvant cisplatin pemetrexed. Six months later, nothing. One year later, we now see multiple bilateral lung nodules. So lung cancer, a very difficult cancer to cure, even in early stages. This was relapsed within a year. We do a biopsy, recurrent lung adenocarcinoma. We have a liquid biopsy that shows an EGFR mutation confirmed on tissue. Here's our EGFR results shown there. EGFR V774 underscore C775. INS NPH V rolls off the tongue at 1.4%. What are we going to do in a case like this? And so, um, Ross, how are you going to interpret uh, these results. Well, so this is an exon 20 insertion. If I hold on, just let me check. I read it right. Yep, exon 20 insertion. There you go. Um, and we're going to ignore the other results because they're not going to change what we're going to do. And um, I think here we know we have these targeted drugs, amivatinib and mobisod. Now, technically, both of them have a second line license, and maybe that's appropriate when you only have a 20 to 30 percent response rate. And so, for this patient, I would actually start them on chemotherapy. Um, I probably would avoid the immunotherapy so that I didn't poison the well. Um, and then when they progress, I would be thinking about these other agents. I'd be very cautious if the patient had brain metastases to recognize that I have limited options for controlling that with a drug. All right. Now, we'll see if our audience agrees or disagrees with uh, Ross Kamage. What is the significance of an in-frame EGFR exon 20 duplication mutation detected in a patient with advanced lung adenocarcinoma? Does it predict response to a first-gen TKI to amivantamab and mobocertinib? Not targetable. Um, chemotherapy is the best only option or not relevant at all, a benign polymorphism. So I'll let people key in their answer here. If you see a result like this and you're not quite sure what it means, what are the resources we have? Can you, can you call someone to get help? Uh, can you phone a friend to, to sort of get someone to walk you through what those mean? Yeah, I think that uh, if uh, it is available in your center, the molecular tumor board can help. And uh, I think that in this case, which is the uh, duplication mutation, so maybe we are not uh, so familiar with the, uh, with, 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 with this wording, we can go back to the pathologist and ask. Yeah. So it's not meant to be overwhelming. When you get a molecular test result, sometimes there's a lot of letters, numbers you don't understand. Call any of these people up here, certainly, but you can reach out to the company. You can reach out to other experts. You, uh, you know, there's no shame in asking for help if we don't want these things mean. And they really do make a difference. So now that we know about testing, we're going to send NGS. We're going to think about liquid. We're going to think about RNA. What do we do once we have these biomarkers? How do we use that to choose our initial therapy? What are the features that we're thinking of? We certainly have many options. We have the possibility of chemotherapy versus targeted therapy. If we're choosing targeted therapy, you know, how do we choose our drug? So when we look at these data, we see these New England Journal articles, we see differences in response rate, PFS, overall survival. Ross, a little bit of an existential question here. OS, is that the ultimate endpoint or is, is PFS the be-all, end-all? Well, it is, but I mean, you know, we make many decisions in our lives that probably affect our overall survival. We don't, because they make us feel good in the short term. So I, you know, I want to have a dessert later today. You know, that that's probably going to improve my immediate well-being, but my overall survival may not change. Um, so I think overall survival, especially when we've got therapies that might keep people alive for years, has become so far removed from what we're doing immediately in the clinic that we have to have earlier efficacy endpoints, be they response rate, be they progression-free survival, be they CNS-related endpoints as well, which is not in your list here. Sandy, uh, you know, we look at toxicity. I think a lot of us are trained to hone in on that grade three, four, grade five toxicity 
and kind of ignore that first column? How do you look at the toxicity tables in that New England Journal paper? Yeah, you know, the grade three, four is really important because, you know, these are the peak events. But the peak events get better with dose reduction, at least with TKIs. So what you really have to look at is the grade twos, because these are what people are living with on a day-to-day basis. And if you're going to be living for day-to-day with for years, which many of our patients can achieve with these toxicities, then a chronic grade two becomes really quite problematic. And so you need to be able to counsel the patient, discuss that, and manage that toxicity in the right way. Yeah, you can't really power through it. If it's chemotherapy, four cycles, adjuvant, a lot of times patients will say, I can push through, I can finish this. Here we're talking about daily therapy sometimes for years. And so we have to put those in the right perspective. Certainly cost factors in. And, you know, we really do have an embarrassment of riches. We have so many options for a lot of these drivers. How do we choose, especially when we have a lot of good drugs, I think the best and hardest situation is ALK. Ross, I'm going to put you on the spot because you've written most of these papers. So uh, give us a landscape of ALK and, and tell us how you choose what we should do. I think we have some data on the next slides too. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we know that crizotinib, you know, has an amazing place in history, but is eaten in multiple next-generation ALK inhibitors in, in head-to-head studies, beaten by electinib, beaten by brigatinib, beaten by insartinib, and beaten by lorlatinib in direct head-to-head studies. Electinib and brigatinib are essentially the same um, in terms of their efficacy. Um, I tend to start with electinib. I tend to keep brigatinib in reserve, even though that's not its label. And I think where we're coming, and on and, and Sanjay's point here, is lorlatinib is the new kid on the block. It probably may be the best in class. Um, it certainly has a very good CNS penetration. In its head-to-head study against crizotinib, the maybe, maybe it's going to turn out to have, you know, the best in class progression-free survival, but it comes at a cost. And we now are in the world of oncology where if I, you know, delay my time to the next treatment decision by three months or four months or 12 months, if I'm doing that at the cost of an extra two years on a drug which is less well tolerated, is that worth it in the big scheme, especially if I can't prove that I can't just play catch up later and use the less well tolerated drug as a next line therapy? Electinib was studied in the ALEX trial. Um, Ross, I think you were involved in, in some of this data? No, I was. I was the U.S. principal investigator, but thanks for remembering that. Um, so the ALEX study was a head-to-head of electinib versus crizotinib. Uh, it was the first drug to actually beat crizotinib in a head-to-head. It had a few other things. So it, knowing that crizotinib's liability was not getting into the brain, it allowed in untreated measurable CNS disease, and it certainly has shaped the idea of the brain as a battleground and getting good efficacy on that. It also mandated routine MRIs of the brain, not only in those with brain metastases, but also in those without. And you can see in the bottom right-hand corner, the blue lower blue line is actually the protective effect, the cumulative instance of new brain metastases being massively suppressed with the electinib compared to the red line, which is crizotinib. It's like the approval of electinib, really a standard in the frontline setting, but it was joined by brigatinib in the alpha trial. Ross, I think you're familiar with this data as well? Yeah, I was the principal investigator for this study. And uh, this was, you know, in the post-crizotinib setting, which doesn't exist anymore, brigatinib was like double the median PFS of electinib. So it was so excited it was going to look awesome in the first-line setting. And it looked exactly the same as electinib. And because it was about two or three years later, it's really struggled to, to gain a lot of market penetration because of that. And Ross, can you talk us through some of the unique toxicity with brigatinib? Well, generally speaking, it illustrates a couple of things. So its dose reduction rate in the clinical trials is 49%, and that sounds terrible. But they also did a similar study that the dose reduction rate in the real world is 15%. So what's the difference? 
Well, mostly in the study, there are rules where you have to dose reduce if something is a grade three. And what happened was a lot of patients got grade three creatinine phosphokinase, grade three amylase, grade three lipase, none of which had any symptoms. And in the real world, everyone ignores that. The other thing that maybe you're hinting at, Steve, is a very small proportion of patients, like 3%, will get what's called early onset pulmonary events. That means you start the pill and within 24, 48 hours, they will get shorter breath. This was initially terrifying, Russian roulette, rare, serious, unpredictable side effect. It's now completely understandable. When we did detailed pulmonary function tests, almost everybody drops their DLCO by about 10 to 20% for a few days, and then it recovers with continued dosing of the drug. And most of those patients don't have symptoms. The 3% who have symptoms, who get the early onset pulmonary events, are probably the ones who don't tolerate a short-lived small drop in their DLCO. They've recently started on oxygen, recent pulmonary embolism, et cetera. Now, you mentioned loralatinib. This is sort of the newest phase three data, the CROWN study. These were updated to ECR this year. These are the initial data showing really a very impressive PFS hazard ratio. It's 0.28 numerically, the lowest, although the confidence intervals do inter- intersect with the other studies. This updated ACR earlier this year. Uh, the median PFS in the study still not yet reached, maybe tracking somewhere around the five-year mark. Um, we always say, use our best drug first. Numerically, uh, this is the lowest hazard ratio. These KM curves, this is the widest separation. But Ross, you mentioned some specific toxicities, and shown there on the right are some of the data. Your experience with this drug and the toxicities you see? So some people, I mean, it's like any drug. Some people tolerate it just fine. But a significant proportion of patients, so 20% of patients will put on 20% of their body weight. Um, 50% of patients will develop some kind of higher CNS, cognitive disorder, memory issues, mood disorders, sleep disorders, hallucinations, auditory hallucinations. You can lessen it, as Sanjay said, by dropping the dose. But the fact that the dose reduction rate in the study is only 20% and these toxicities are higher, it means a lot of patients are ending up putting on a lot of weight and being a little crazy, and they're just putting up with it. So certainly something we have to be aware of, but as you mentioned, if recognized early, hopefully you can make dose reductions. An approved option in the frontline setting, I do want to be clear, but we do have many options here. ROS1 is, is a 1% alteration. This is another fusion that's relevant. Sanjay, can you talk about, a little bit about some of the options for ROS1 lung cancer? Yeah, we've got some great options for it. You know, we have the first data that came through with chrysotinib, as we know it hits ROS1 as well as uh, Alcan and, and MET, and you know, we see, uh, there's been several trials which have looked at this. One of the first one registration study showed a response rate of about 66%. We know it has a bit of a vulnerability in the brain, which is a problem with, with much of these oncogene addicted, uh, tumors. And then the second drug that came along is entrectinib. Entrectinib is an interesting drug, being it hits track as well as ROS. So one of the problems that we're getting with entrectinib is that we see the on target track toxicities. And so we can get some neurological problems that it, it can cause. But, you know, the response rate seems to be perhaps numerically uh, larger, perhaps similar, depending on the type of study that we've uh, uh, seen out. But the progression-free survival of both of these drugs is really meaningful, and both, I think, are very reasonable options. They do have different toxicity profiles. You know, we know chrysostin very well, some liver transaminitis, QT interval, and trectinib has definitely a little bit more cardiac issues that we need to keep an eye on the left ventricle, uh, especially for these younger, fitter patients that can be on this drug for a longer period of time. And, of course, the track on target effects can be problematic for some patients. The new kid on the block, or at least coming around the corner for the block, is repetrectinib. So this is a 
another track ROS inhibitor, which has been given breakthrough designation status. So guys that are listening on the in the UK, do watch out because breakthrough designation status means Project Orbis pathway for UK reimbursement. And this is a this is a drug which is being evaluated both in the frontline ROS setting and in the post TKI ROS setting. There's some really very impressive results in that uh, early data set as yet, and uh, perhaps some track data coming through down the line as well. So a long list of available drugs for these different alterations. We're looking at response rate, but we're looking at PFS OS. But in the context of toxicity, another principle we look at when we're selecting these targeted agents is their efficacy in the brain, CNS considerations. And Marina, you work us a little bit about how you, you factor that in your choices. Yeah, I think that also here we have uh, a revolution. So we know that the previous generation EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors, they had some activity in the brain because as you can see, the response rate was about 30-40%, although we know very well that in the clinical trials, sometimes the patients were pretreated with the radiation therapy, and so it was very difficult to understand what was exactly the response rate with the previous generation TKI. We know also that there is also subleptomeningeal uh, activity, in particular uh, with ozimertinib, doubling also the dose of uh, ozimertinib. But I believe that the big change was with the third-generation EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor, because you can see that here with ozimertinib, the activity and the penetration in the CNS is higher. And in my clinical practice, I think that in the beginning, I was treating the patient before with the radiation therapy in the brain and then with the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Now, with the results of ozimertinib, I think that I'm doing exactly the opposite. In particular, if the patients are asymptomatic, I go and I decide also with the patient that, that maybe it is worth it to wait and start with the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, see the activity in the brain, and then just use the radiation in the end. Clearly, I suggest here to work in a multidisciplinary team and make the decisions all together, but the activity in the CNS is quite remarkable, and so this is something that we should consider. We know very well that from the results of the FLORA trial, and it was also uh, seen also in other trials uh, with the ozimertinib that the activity, the median progression-free survival of uh, ozimertinib was high also in patients uh, with uh, brain meds in the beginning. The median progression-free survival was 15.2 months. And you can see that from the curves, the ozimertinib has uh, had very higher activity compared to gefitinib and erlotinib and the first-generation EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And what was, in my opinion, very important was that also the overall survival was superior of ozimertinib compared to the standard of care. So I believe that uh, the, it's still a problem to have a, a brain metastasis, but I think that maybe we have higher chances to treat these patients and also this uh, is the same also for all the other tyrosine kinase inhibitors, so for the ALK inhibitors, the RET inhibitors, and for all the other uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So I suggest you just to discuss every case with your multidisciplinary tumor board, and in particular if the patients are asymptomatic, consider also the idea 
to start immediately with the tyrosine kinase inhibitors and then use the radiation therapy as a possible backup plan. Yeah, and we know this applies to other alterations as well. We have many CNS-active drugs, and this really is a bit of a paradigm shift, but an important one, because there can be consequences with radiation. And we use a lot of stereotactic radiation here in the U.S., and we'll have patients that have three or four brain metastases. Maybe they see radiation oncology first, get SRS first, then come see us. We find uh, a RET alteration, a RET fusion. We start on a selective RET inhibitor, which we know is a great CNS-active drug. And you know, there are sometimes when I kind of regret that radiation. Ross, I, I'm seeing at least, I've, it seems like a lot more radiation necrosis these days. Do you think that's, that's true? Yes. Well, so there are multiple reasons for that. So one is as we do more SRS, you kind of roll the dice every time, treat a single lesion. So as we treat more lesions, um, we have a greater chance to happen. Secondly, there's a time-dependent effect as your patient stays alive longer, and they have enough time to manifest this. And then the third reason is we actually believe that some of these CNS penetrant drugs can influence the rate of radiation necrosis. We don't quite know why, but um, you know we are we are seeing radiation necrosis. I would say much more in the presence of both immunotherapy and um, these CNS penetrant drugs. Whereas I saw it very infrequently, for example, when we just have crizotinib. Yeah, and you know, radiation necrosis can really be a devastating toxicity as well. It can be really challenging to overcome. So maybe in some cases, an advantage to really avoiding that. All right, principle five here, we have lots of options. We're thinking of CNS. We're thinking of response toxicity. One thing that we see a lot, one of the challenges we have is acquired resistance, Sanjay, uh, different types of resistance. How do you think of acquired resistance to targeted therapy? Yeah, you know, so I, I, I think it's really important that we work out what the resistance mechanism is for these drugs because only through understanding the biological principles of resistance can we work out the best next steps for the patients that we have. And I generally classify them into these, these sort of categories that you can see on the screen. You have, um, you have new mutations on the same target and we sort of classify that as on-target mutations. Classic example being T790M in EGFR with a patient with a DEL19. You can have bypass signaling, so upregulation, either through increased expression or through a gene rearrangement or through amplification or through a new mutation in another signaling pathway. Classic example being MET amplification. And you can have mutations in downstream effectors, so mutations in other parts of the same signaling system so that the same pathway is still activated despite the inhibition from the top down. And of course, the other thing that we notice when we biopsy our patients is that you can actually change or transdifferentiate the type of tumor that you have from an adenocarcinoma to a higher grade neuroendocrine carcinoma or even sometimes a squamous cell carcinoma. And so these are the main mechanisms that we see. And that last point I think is an important one, Sanjay, because you're not going to pick up lineage plasticity or small cell transformation necessarily with liquid biopsy. Right? Yeah, and I think this is a big issue. So the problems that we have with liquid biopsy is that we're not very good at, to, at uh, detecting gene copy number with liquid biopsy. Our bioinformatics aren't that well good, that good yet. So if we're relying on liquid biopsy to look for med amplification, we're going to miss it. And if we are uh, not biopsying our patients, there's no way we're going to pick up a uh, high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma. You can get some molecular variants that might indicate that it might be there, but really, unless you biopsy it, you don't know. Now, shown here is, as you alluded to, on target resistance, a classic example here of T790M, and this was relevant at the time uh, because we had an active drug in that setting. We know that for osimertinib, it's a little different. So EGFR resistance is different from alk resistance, but EGFR resistance is different based on what drug 
you're giving up front. And while T790M sort of mediates most of it for the first and second gen, it's really different for the third gen drugs. Um, so when we think of resistance, we're thinking, is it one site versus multiple sites? We might think of local therapy like radiation or surgery. If it's just one site, clearly if it's a lot, we need better systemic treatment. Our general approach, if there's something targetable, maybe we can target it versus switching completely. Um, and there are certainly mechanism agnostic strategies. So let's talk a little bit about resistance to frontline osimertinib. We hear a lot about MET amplification. Ross talked about the, the qualifications of how we define amplification, but this is something that's potentially actionable, as well as other fusions. And so, Ross, how can we, we see RET and EGFR? Does this happen in practice? Yeah, so all our basic principles that these things are mutually exclusive get exploded when we're talking about the acquired resistance setting. So as Sanjay said, you know, you have on-target and off-target resistance. And on off-target, just think of anything that can be a driver can come back in as a co-driver. And so we see these things. And the great thing is some of these things are targetable. Many be a drug company telling you to combine a RET inhibitor with osimertinib when you get RET fusion. But you can see from Zosia Piotrowski's paper here that they do respond. Um, so great responses here with both salpercatinib and prosatinib adding the RET inhibitor um, to these two cases. MET is also potentially actionable, right, Rust? Yeah. Um, again, you know, if you have a MET exon 14 skip mutation or a MET gene fusion, that's fine. But MET amplification, the issue is what level do you call relevant? Um, it may appear somewhat different from as a primary driver than in the acquired resistance setting. And the simplest way to understand that is it's a subclone. And so your denominator is all of the cancer, whereas your numerator is just the resistant clones. Um, but you can see here also Merdinib plus Savalitinib. Um, in a slightly messy study, because you could be met positive in a, in a whole bunch of different ways using local testing, and also you didn't have to have had a third-generation inhibitor to go into the study. So what was the osimertinib effect as well? But you can see, I think it's in the left-hand column B1, previously treated with a third-generation inhibitor. They got a, a reasonable 30% response rate here. Other, other studies, maybe you're going to go into those, you know, using different and slightly more robust means of defining MET amplification as the mechanism resistance have produced higher response rates. And these are some data we just saw. I know you saw these, Ross, because you were sitting right next to me. Um, we heard about imivantamab before. What do you think of these data? Well, so um, th this I took away in two different ways. So so here we are with our amivantamab, our bispecific EGFR MET antibody. Uh, you progressed on a third-generation inhibitor, and then you went on to lazertinib, so Janssen's third-generation inhibitor, plus amivantamab. Because you were going third-generation to third-generation, that shouldn't have been an issue in the data that was presented here. You could have had intervening chemo, but they had another study that looked very similar results when there wasn't intervening chemo. So lazertinib, not an approved drug now, an investigational third-gen TKI, but amivantamab showing clear activity after osimertinib may be able to overcome resistance in certain patients after osimertinib. So we will have more options. And you know, there are some that do seem to be a little independent of mechanism. Uh, Marina, can you talk to us about patritimab? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that you saw in, uh, in ASCO a lot of antibody drug conjugates. This is one of them. This is patritumab deruxtecan. Uh, patritumab is uh, targeting HER3, which is overexpressed in lung cancer in about 80% of cases, in particular in cases with EGFR mutations. And you can see that there was a very good activity with a response rate of about 40%. And what you can see in the bottom of the slides is that the majority of patients responded independently by the mechanism of resistance. So the progression-free survival was, again, pretty remarkable, 8.2 months. 
And so I believe that this can be really a nice strategy for the future of our patients. Yeah, we need strategies to overcome resistance, some that can be targeted to specific subsets, some that sort of work a little more globally. You mentioned track. Uh, Sanjay, TRAC uh, inhibitors really are approved now for patients with NTRAC fusions, not mutations. We have larotrectinib and entrectinib, both approved in the frontline setting. While these are very good drugs, they're very active, we do see resistance. Luckily, we do have some next-gen TRAC TKIs that are in development, repitrectinib, selitrectinib, and talotrectinib, all with early data. None of these drugs approved yet. Um, repitrectinib is a type 1 macrocyclic kinase inhibitor that should be designed to solve in front and gatekeeper mutations. Really, targeted therapy is the playground for medicinal chemistry. And really, all these drugs are the result of uh, very active medicinal chemists. Uh, when we think of resistance, these gatekeeper mutations and solvent front mutations can really prevent these oversized type 1 TKIs from gaining access to that ATP binding pocket. And what we see is that these new macrocyclic kinase, they're smaller, they're compacter, and they can still get in and have an effect. The Trident study is... Uh, an early stage study looking at repitrectinib in two sets, ROS1, which you'd mentioned, Sanjay, and NTRAC fusion. It does have activity at both. For ROS1, we saw in the frontline setting, overall response rate there, 79%. In patients who had prior ROS1 TKI and prior chemotherapy, response rate 42%. If we look at those with a solvent from mutation at G2032R mutation, that response rate 59%. So maybe we should be selected, but really um, encouraging responses in these settings. This drug not yet approved. But in NTRAC, uh, TKI and IE, we saw a response rate 41%. And those pre-treated, we also saw activity here, response rate 48%. Um, see these are the waterfall plots. For those that are new to the, these types of images, each of these bars represents one patient, and zero is where you start. And so if it goes up, your tumor grew as the best response. If it goes down, your tumor shrunk. We see this has the familiar look, a waterfall plot that we want to see with targeted therapy, where most patients are getting a response that was NTRAC. Here's ROS1. Where again, the vast majority of patients seeing some reduction in their tumor, and we'll see if this drug becomes available. So addressing therapeutic resistance, we're really going to pursue biopsy, biomarker profiling, looking for something we can act on. Fortunately, in some cases, we do have a next-gen TKI. Chemotherapy, though, remains an effective treatment. And, you know, Ross, you published a little data on chemotherapy and certain drivers. These are active drugs still, right? Yeah. I mean, we know that all of the gene rearrangements have exaggerated sensitivity to pemetrexid. And the big debate, as you have it there, is when you progress on the TKI and you start chemotherapy, do you keep the TKI going or not? We had previous studies with first-generation EGFR inhibitors that said there was no real advantage, but in the setting of drugs that now get into the brain, would you be taking away protection of the brain? There are attempting to do re replicate these studies with modern TKIs, although they are hard to accrue to because patients actually don't want to be in the arm that stops the TKI. Yeah, so very often we will continue, but acknowledging the lack of prospective data so far, immunotherapy, though, maybe a little less appealing uh, Marina, do you use immunotherapy in someone that's progressing on an EGFR inhibitor? No, there is. A, we are still waiting for the results of the combination of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and also the antiangiogenics, but I don't suggest to use the immunotherapy alone in this category of patients, and in general, in all the target mutations. And that's, I mean, that's different, right? Because we use immunotherapy for everything, but this is a case where it really hasn't been effective. This really is, these are different cancers. So driver-positive lung cancer is a different cancer, different biology. We're now treating it differently. We've shown data up to date here on late stage, but these same principles probably apply to early stage as well. And we saw some of these data relatively recently in that early stage. Uh, Sanjay, can you talk us a little bit about Adora? 
Yeah, so, you know, Dora is, in my mind, one of the most important trials in the history of lung cancer development, Ross, for your book at some stage. So, Eudora is a really critical study. It took patients with EGFR mutation. We know that the EGFR mutation can be highly effectively drugged in the metastatic setting. So, can we translate these findings to the early setting? We've had previous studies with first and second generation inhibitors, uh, perhaps not that much activity and some controversies about where patients relapse. Now you've got a highly effective brain penetrant drug. Does it reduce the rate of relapse? So Adora was randomized phase three double blind study. Patients with operable disease, stage 1B, 2, 3A, in patients that had undergone cancer-specific surgery. They all had adjuvant chemotherapy or not adjuvant chemotherapy as patients and oncologists decided and they were randomized to three years of osimertinib or placebo with the primary endpoint of uh, disease-free uh, recurrence rate. And what we see is a bunch of hazard ratios that are unheard of in lung cancer. I mean, in lung cancer, we love great hazard ratios and we've got very embarrassed by our riches of wonderful hazard ratios about 0.6, you know, very excited by that. But, you know, here we've got in the stage two to three A, which is the primary endpoint hazard ratio 0.17. I mean, I had to look at that a couple of times before I could really, really make sense of that. I mean, these are phenomenal differences. And then if you add in the one Bs as well, you get 0.20. So what we're seeing is at the two-year and three-year time points, the vast majority of patients that are on osimertinib have still not relapsed. Now, there are a number of caveats to this. This isn't the final data. This is a first interim analysis. And the problem with the first interim analysis is we don't know whether this data will mature and still be as good as it is at this point. Of course, we're skeptical that it will be as good because historically, early interim analyses have never outplayed the later analyses. And these are the overall survival. I mean, at the moment, we've got so much censoring, it's almost impossible to make any head or tail of the censoring of the overall survival data. But Sanjay, if you're showing me a DFS hazard ratio of 0.17, an 83% reduction in the risk of, of disease recurrence, one thinks that that is likely to translate to OS, but Marina, not necessarily, right? We have a little bit of track record here. Yeah, we had uh, previously uh, some trials that were negative for the overall survival. This is one of them. And this was a comparison also with, uh, with jefitinib and the chemotherapy. But there was another trial that was the Radian trial with erlotinib, and they failed to show an increase of the overall survival. There was a big, a, a big debate be, be behind that, and one part maybe could be that the fact that the tyrosine kinase inhibitors were given just for two years or one year and not for three years like uh, in osimertinib. So I'm clearly, I come from Europe and I'm a, a fan of the overall survival, but clearly the results of uh, the Adora were uh, quite impressive, uh, also if we had also negative trials in terms of overall survival. So jury's still out a little bit, but the drug is approved by the FDA for use in adjuvant EGFR-mutant lung cancer. When we think of resected EGFR-mutant lung cancer, Ross, do we still need to give chemo? Well, I mean, this is controversial. So uh, there's at least one of my colleagues who says, well, you know, you have this amazing disease-free survival advantage, uh, and you're going to get like a 5% overall survival advantage with chemotherapy and lots of toxicity. You know, why give it? Uh, my argument would be because it has a 5% overall survival advantage. And the issue with the disease-free survival 
I personally don't think it's about the one or two years. It's about doing the analysis when most of the people are actually on the therapy. So 60% of the people in that Adora analysis were on therapy when they did the analysis. So you're really looking at does a TKI suppress disease versus nothing. If you did that study in the metastatic disease and you did the analysis uh, of placebo versus osimertinib after a few months, you'd have the same hazard ratio, seriously. So the issue is twofold. One, will it change overall survival? I do not believe it will. I think those curves will come back together as the drug stops. But the second question is, does that matter that it doesn't change overall survival? And the purest view is, no, it doesn't. You know, we should only use adjuvant therapy if it changes overall survival, just like we argued with adjuvant chemotherapy. But I've actually changed my thinking on that. If I told you that uh, you could get in a time machine and come out and in five years' time, and then we'll treat your cancer, given the speed of change that we've seen, maybe everything's going to be better. So I start to view adjuvant TKIs not as a means of curing the patient, but as an oncology time machine. Okay, hold on. Let me... Let me push on that a little bit then. So, Ross, you see a resected 3A, microscopic 3A lung cancer, but with an ALK rearrangement. Are you thinking adjuvant ALK therapy there? Not in the absence of a license, but, I mean, it's going to look exactly the same. We also are exploring these in the neoadjuvant setting. I think this brings up different questions about should neoadjuvant therapy affect the extent of surgery? Really difficult questions to answer, but we have the NeoAdora study, which is looking at osimertinib as part of neoadjuvant therapy with chemo or on its own. We have the Adora 2 trial, which is looking at uh, the role of adjuvant TKIs in stage 1A lung cancer, and the LCMC4 leader trial. This is really looking at a bunch of different targets in that neoadjuvant setting. So we'll have more answers to come. Let's talk a little bit about some of the non-TKI targeted therapy options. You know, targeted therapy, we're usually talking about kinase inhibitors, but there are other options, monoclonals, bispecifics, ADCs, different combinations. This is one of my favorite alterations, one of the rarest, though. I acknowledge that it's hard to find, although we've seen two in the past two weeks at my institution. Uh, near England, one fusions are rare events. They occur in about 0.2%, but they're across cancer. So we see them in lung cancer. You see them in breast cancer, colon, cholangio, sarcoma, uh, GBMs. These are best detected with RNA-seq. And what you had said, Ross, earlier, this is a huge gene. It's a massive gene. Almost all of it is intronic. And so if you're doing DNA-based NGS, you are not going to get the coverage to find these. If you splice out those introns and uh, with RNA-seq, uh, then you are much more likely to find them when they're there. And what we saw in a registry study is that they do relatively poorly with chemotherapy and chemo-IO. We do have some drugs in development for energy one fusion positive lung cancer. Afatinib, we know, is a second-gen pan-herb kinase inhibitor. This drug has activity. Shown here are some case reports, a case series, uh, showing that afatinib can induce responses, some of which can be durable. And the reason why we see afatinib work, if we look at that cartoon on the right, NRG1 is not the kinase. NRG1 uh, is the ligand. It's that little red ball there. And so what happens is NRG1 normally binds to HER3. When you have a fusion, instead of NRG1 floating around, it is tethered to the cell membrane in proximity to that receptor. And so it is inappropriately close to its receptor and constantly binding. It binds to HER3. HER3 heterodimerizes to HER2. And then you see downstream signal transduction. While we don't have a drug targeting the NRG1 ligand, we have lots of stuff that targets HER2, like afadinib, and we do see case reports here where we see active activity. The TAPER trial is ASCO's prospective study. This has an arm for energy one fusion cancers, all types, where afadinib is given. BI also has a decentralized prospective study of afadinib, where they provide afadinib in single patient INDs for anyone with an energy one fusion positive cancer. 
So Fadna will get some prospective data here. Zenokituzumab is a bi-specific antibody that targets HER2 and HER3. This has shown some impressive data. These were um, uh, data presented last year, 76% with some reduction. And this year at ASCO on Tuesday in the developmental therapeutics, we'll see serabantamab. This is an elevation antibody, a HER3 monoclonal antibody that's being studied in the Crestone study in different tumors with energy one fusions. And we'll see those uh, uh, exciting data on Tuesday at this meeting. Um, we also have other targets, other types of treatments that can be effective in targeting therapy, like antibody drug conjugates. Uh, Maria, can you walk us through some of those? Yes. So as you can see, the antibody drug conjugates are done by more or less three parts. One part is the antibody, and we have many of them, then we will see the targets. Then there is a linker and a payload, which, which is basically a cytotoxic drug. So basically with one part, you can... Uh, uh, stay on the tumor, and with the other part, you can deliver in a more in a more clever way the uh, chemotherapy. Uh, there are many targets. I'm sure that you have seen them in many presentation in ASCO, and you can see that the targets of the antibody drug conjugates in the pipelines of the pharma companies are many. I, we saw HER2, HER3, TROP2. CACAM5, CMET, and also for small cell lung cancer, DLL3 is, is quite a very, has a remarkable activity and also TROP2. So I think that potentially and hopefully they will be, they will become part of our, our armamentarium for the treatment of advanced no small cell lung cancer and basically also for small cell lung cancer. This is one of them. We will see the results tomorrow. This is uh, a, an antibody drug conjugate targeting CACAM5, and CACAM5 is expressed in about 25% of the nosmore cell lung cancer patients. And tomorrow you will see the results that are quite impressive. They are clearly just 11 patients, but the, rev the response rate was uh, uh, very high, and in particular in this subpopulation, uh, the patients were highly, highly pretreated. They were third and fourth line. So hopefully we will see this type of uh, new molecules more often in the pipelines and also in the, in the future of, of our patients. And we talked a little bit about MET, and you'd mentioned, Ross, that MET IHC will be relevant. This is the reason why this is a drug with breakthrough designation. Can you talk a little bit about Talisov-V? Yeah, so, I mean, MET gets complex because when you have protein expression, is that just on a normal non-small cell lung cancer without a driver that's related to MET? Or is it also coexisting with one of these MET drivers? But either way, uh, TILIS-OV is a MET-directed ABC um, in patients who were non-squamous EGFR wild type and for pre-selected for MET protein expression at about, which represents about 25% of that population. They had uh, a very good response rate. Then if they broke that down by the high MET, so that's now about 12% of lung cancer, they had a quite astonishing nearly 53, 54% response rate. Um, because MET, as we heard earlier, is also a mechanism resistance in EGFR mutant lung cancer, there's a separate subgroup looking in uh, combination with an EGFR TKI in EGFR mutant lung cancer. And you can see down at the bottom um, from the abstract that Jonathan Goldman's going to present, response rate of nearly 60%. I mean, it's just amazing. Really exciting uh, drugs here. Another ADC that's getting a lot of attention, though, is targeting HER2. And Sanjay, I'll ask you to walk us through a little bit of the HER2 ADCs. 
Yeah, so you know, HER2 is a, is a druggable target in uh, uh, lung cancer. We've been really looking at what the target is in lung cancer for a while. Uh, it's not very clear because we have the same problem as MET. You know, is it the protein? Is it the copy number of the gene or is it the mutation? And certainly at the moment, we're very much currently focusing on the mutation as the particular target, uh, which is a bit paradoxical because the drugs that actually seems to be having the greatest activity is something that affects the protein on the cell surface. Uh, where we are depositing the toxic payload, the, um, the chemotherapy agent on the cell surface. But this seems to be having an effect not only on the cancer cell directly, but also via targeting the bystander cells, which then affect the uh, tumor cells. Now, we've had data previously on TDM1, which we, our breast colleagues have been using for some time. I would suggest that some, you know, there is activity there, but relatively modest uh, ac activity there. And the, 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 the trial that I think is going to revolutionize this space is the uh, Destiny Lung 01 trial, which is presented by our colleague Bob Lee from Memorial previously. And this is a cohort, multi-cohort expansion, just escalation and cohort expansion in different cohorts. But, uh, you know, we've got an overexpressing cohort and a HER2 mutation cohort with the drug trastuzumab deruxtecan. So trastuzumab is the actual parent antibody which binds to the HER2 protein. And deruxtecan is the toxic payload which is delivered, which is essentially a cytotoxic. And when we look at the um, when we look at the uh, data with Destiny Lung 01, this is the HER2 mutant cohort expansion. What we can see this beautiful waterfall plot, you know, a plot that you know we just love to look at with amazing shrinkage in the vast majority of patients. And even when you look at these spider plots in the bottom part of the graph, you can see the vast majority of patients are getting some shrinkage which is durable. If you look at the interesting part of the bottom of the waterfall plot, even some patients with no expression of HER2 are getting some sort of shrinkage, which, which I think is part of the beauty of these ADCs. Now, when we look at um, the safety, there are a number of things we need to consider. Yes, this is an ADC, so chemo light is what I sort of describe it to my patients. Very light, depending on what dose we're giving. But we do see some unique toxicities. And in this particular um, uh, compound, the deruxtecan, can cause ILD-like pneumonitis in patients, which in this trial occurred at about 26%. Is that a big deal? Well, look, we're pulmonary oncologists, right? We deal with pneumonitis on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, for me, I don't think that's, that's such a big a deal. It may be a bigger deal for oncologists that aren't lung, lung docs that are dealing with this, uh, where pneumonitis is uh, relatively uh, uh, rare. And if we look at where we've got, we've got some activity that um, the drug has in the HER2 overexpressed data set. It's not perhaps as impressive as we've seen with the mutation. That probably speaks to the biology. That HER2 expression is not necessarily a key driver here, and they were getting more passenger efficacy than we are in driver efficacy that we're seeing here. But nevertheless, this is still potentially important efficacy data that we are generating. And we should look out for this trial, which is currently launched, the Destiny Lung 04 uh, trial in which patients with uh, uh, HER2, exon 19 or 20 mutant lung cancer are randomized in the first-line setting, either to the standard of care chemo IO, pembroplatin, and pemetrexid, or TDXD at the 5.4 dose, slightly lower dose, with uh, appreciable efficacy, but certainly less risk of pneumonitis. Now, this drug not yet approved by the FDA for lung cancer, but it is available for other cancers, and it is in the NCCN guidelines, which can help us 
sometimes get that offer, uh, offered for patients with allergy mutant lung cancer. Uh, Marini, you talked a little bit about pitrutumab. Um, uh, can you walk us through some of these data? Yeah, this is just an update of what we saw before. And this is uh, a, uh, an antibody drug conjugate which targets HER3 that, as I said before, is a, we're expressed in about 80% of lung cancer tumors. And uh, as you remember, the response rate was pretty interesting. It's about 40% with a medium follow-up, with a medium progression-free survival of 8.2 months. And there is again some ILD toxicity. And uh, I'm sure that in the future we will be able to manage also the ILD toxicity. The results that were presented uh, last year and uh, they are updated also in ASCO uh, this year, they showed again a pretty interesting response rate with a, a very good uh, uh, progression for survival. The last topic today is trope 2 with two trope 2 targeting antibody drug conjugates in development. Trope 2 is a transmembrane glycoprotein that is highly expressed in non-small cell lung cancer. We detect this by immunohistochemistry, shown here at the bottom right. No current testing recommendations because there's a very high prevalence of Trope 2 expression in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. What we do know is that high Trope 2 expression is associated with a poor prognosis, as shown in the Kaplan-Meier on the top right. We have two trope 2 targeting antibody drug conjugates in the clinic being explored in lung cancer. The first is sasituzumab govotecan. As with all ADCs, there are three components. The payload for this is SN38. That's a more potent version of arinotecan, a toprosomerase 1 inhibitor. It is linked uh, using a hydrolyzable linker with a very high drug antibody ratio, 7.6 to 1, to a humanized anti-trope 2 antibody. And that provides the targeting, uh, directing this compound to the cells of interest. Sastuzumab govotecan has clear activity in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. We saw a response rate about 17%, median survival 9.5 months, but this was a very heavily pretreated population with almost 60% of patients receiving three or more prior lines of therapy. As we move earlier in therapy, we really expect those numbers to go up. Importantly, Sastuzumab govotecan had a very manageable safety profile in the early phase one, two studies. The ongoing trials will tell us a lot more about real efficacy in an earlier population. The Evoke 1 trial is a randomized phase three trial comparing Sastuzumab govotecan to docetaxel. That's going to be after chemo and after immunotherapy. And the Evoke 2 trial is a first line study that looks at the combination of Sastuzumab govotecan with PD1 immunotherapy and with or without chemotherapy. So more to come on Sastuzumab govotecan. We have Datapotamab derixtecan also being explored in this space. This has a slightly lower drug to antibody ratio of about four, but the antitrope 2 linked uh, through a stable uh, linker payload uh, to derixtecan. And that's a cleavable tetrapeptide-based linker, another topo one inhibitor. We learned about this drug in the tropion hand tumor one study that looked across different tumors, but the expansion in non-small cell lung cancer looked at four, six, and eight milligrams per kilogram. What we saw was pretty clear activity with response rates hovering around 25%, duration of response nine to 10 months um, in the, the six to eight mig dose. Uh, very clear activity as shown in the waterfall and the spider plots on the right, really regardless of doses, seeing impressive responses. An interesting feature 
of datapotamab darixtecan is its activity in driver-positive lung cancer. And so when we look at tumors with actionable genomic alterations, that's an area where we have a huge unmet need. We saw response rates in this set of 35%, duration of response 9.5 months. I'll call out clinical activities specifically in EGFR mutant lung cancer after osimertinib. The reason this is important is these are generally tumors that don't respond to immunotherapy and those types of strategies, and really the only option being chemotherapy that's providing a very important option in that subgroup. If we see more, we will learn more from ongoing studies. Again, the tropion pan tumor one study showed that uh, we see activity across doses. The six mg per kg dose is the one that's been selected for further development where we saw a response for the 28% median duration of response of 10 and a half months and safety profile, very manageable, but watch for things like nausea and stomatitis. Tropion uh, lung 01 is ongoing based on these results. And we have tropion lung 05 that's looking specifically in patients with lung cancer that has an actionable genomic alteration after targeted therapy, after chemotherapy. Again, huge unmet need. We'll see how active datapotamab can is in EGFR, ALK, ROS1, RET, um, MET positive lung cancer, as well as others. So trope two, hopefully an interesting case. We're going to go through um, this case very quickly. A 75-year-old female, never smoker, uh, diagnosed with EGFR wild-type lung cancer. NGS does show mutations in SCK11, ARD1A, TP53, and ERB2. She receives carbopempembro from December 2019 to February 2020. Then Pembro alone until May 2020, but then has this PET scan progression in the superclav, left hyalur, left adrenal mets, nothing on Gardent. Um, and when we think of different options here, out of these ADCs, what are we going to recommend for this patient? Um, you know, Chasuzumab, Durextecan, uh, TDM1, Petrutumab, Durextecan, Datapotamab, Datapotamab, we call it Datapotato. Um, <laughs> We do know that HER2 mutations do predict response to the trastuzumab can ADC, and so this was a very active drug. Um, but now imaging suspicious of ILD. Um, Ross, how do you manage ILD after an ADC? Uh, that's a great question. So um, I'm going to disagree with my colleague, Sanjay, because that's fun to do. Um, <laughs> but I do actually think ILD is a big issue. So if you catch it when it's grade one, so that's asymptomatic radiographic changes, you can hold the drug, start steroids, and probably when it settles in, you can cautiously reintroduce the drug. Maybe you're going to even reintroduce it with steroid coverage and taper off the steroids. Once you get into grade two, which is when you start to have symptoms, or grade three when you need oxygen, well, you become into a problem because it really is a snowball effect. The kind of, you know, the cat is out of the bag at that point in time. And yeah, maybe not everybody dies, but a lot of patients end up on the intensive care unit. So the key thing, I think what we'll find in the future is that the grade, so as soon as you start steroids, grade one becomes grade two. So you'll see the grade one rate go down, the grade two rate go up, and the grade three and four rate go down because we'll start steroids earlier. And that's what I think the management of ILD will be in the future, spotting it early, holding, giving steroids, settling it down, cautiously reintroducing. We have a few questions that I, I want to go very quickly. These are rapid questions. Sanjay, difference between ctDNA and cfDNA? So circulating um, free DNA is the total amount of DNA short fragments which are identified in the plasma, only of which a small proportion arises from the tumor. And that small proportion is called circulating tumor DNA. Uh, Ross, here's a great question. Exxon 20 insertion treated with chemo IO at first line, progression after 15 months, then mobocertinib 
and then progresses in the brain, in newborn brain mets, mild systemic regression, already received brain radiation. Question here, any role for osimertinib in exon 20 insertion lung cancer? So the, the, so the usual answer should be no, but it all depends on which exon 20 insertion you've got. Um, so there's some rare ones which are actually responsive, but let's assume you don't have one of those. You can try it. You can even try high dose, but I would be very pessimistic that it's going to do anything. I think that's a bad situation for the patient, unfortunately. Mm. And uh, here's another quick question. KRAS G12D, what's your management there, Marina? So, well, as we said before, G12D is different from the G12C, and so there is no activity of the two drugs that we saw before, but there are already uh, in the pipelines of the pharma companies many KRAS inhibitors coming. So if you have a patient with a G12D, maybe you can refer this patient to uh, centers where they have the clinical trials, and tomorrow we will see also some results on them. We're, we're at time. Uh, if there are other questions, we're happy to stay a little longer and ask, but I want to uh, be respectful of your evenings. Thank you so much for coming, and really thank you to the, the panel here. It's been an honor. I love learning from all of you, Dr. Garasino, Dr. Kamich, Dr. Popat. Uh, let's, let's thank our panelists for, for coming, and again, thank you guys for, for joining us. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Longevity Foundation. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UTP 860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated, Elevation Oncology Incorporated, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Sanofi, and Turning Point Therapeutics Incorporated.